continuing study of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 17. I mean, you didn't, it just, I don't think it gets better than studying through the Gospels. We learn about Jesus Christ, our Lord, God in flesh, teaching us, manifesting himself to us, telling us what's going to come, telling us what is. Folks, if you don't read the Bible, you don't have the words of life. You really don't have any idea. If you don't have any idea, read the Bible, right? It's a simple thing. Today, Jesus gives us a little precursor in chapter 17 of what he'll teach in more detail in Luke 21 and in the book of Revelation that is revealed. Um, but let's take a look at this today. It's important. This is very important. In fact, strap your seatbelts on. It's gonna, I'm going to make it through the end of the chapter, Lord willing, and uh, uh, some of you may go away with your head spinning. That's part of the plan, that the heads spin, that there be ideas and questions and that you might go back and read a little bit more. In verse 22, he said to the disciples, notice he's talking to the 12, his disciples. He's gone back and forth between the disciples and the Pharisees. He's telling the disciples, the days will come. The, the word days and day throughout this context is over and over. The days will come when you will long to see, the, to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Jesus is the Son of Man. He calls himself that. He calls himself the Son of Man 31 times in Matthew's gospel, 14 times in Mark's gospel, 25 times in Luke's gospel, and 13 times in John's gospel. Son of Man. I know what you're thinking. Who's he? Let's move over. Hold that little place. Take one of these nifty little things in your Bible, little ribbons, and turn over to the left to the book of Daniel. Daniel. I hope Daniel is well-worn in your Bible. If it's not, it's another one of those great books that will help you even with the modern day understanding of what's going on in Israel today. Daniel. It's really, uh, it's a little bit outside the middle of your Bible. If you take your Bible and you go to the middle, you'll probably get turned to Psalms or Isaiah. If you're in any one of those, just keep moving to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, there's a little book of Lamentations after Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. I'll turn there with you. Daniel. Chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is an incredible, unbelievably incredible and beautiful prophecy of world history from the past for us in the past, all the way into the future, and yet it's not quite fulfilled. For us to read it, we read the past, we read the present, and we see what's going to happen in the future. For Daniel, when he saw it, when it was given to him, it was all future. He saw four creatures. I shouldn't say all future because one of the creatures he saw was this creature that dealt with the, the kingdom that he was in. Daniel was a Jewish boy. He was a son of nobility living in Jerusalem, a young teenager, perhaps as young as 13, no older than 17. He was taken captive by uh, the, the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C., taken out of his home, kidnapped as it were. We've seen some of that in the news recently. Kidnapped from his home with about 75 other youth and nobility of nobility. He's taken over from Jerusalem into Babylon into the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to try to brainwash them. Daniel stands up and says, no, I won't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes, comes to respect Daniel. And so Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were their Jewish names, they become leaders in the Babylonian kingdom. 
Jewish young men, leaders in the Babylonian kingdom, and godly young men. While they're there, they begin to rule, and God's people are there. Because Nebuchadnezzar goes back from 605 B.C., he goes back in 597 B.C., takes more Jews captive, Ezekiel was one of them, and then he goes back in 586 B.C., takes the rest and kills the rest. Leaves a little remnant in, in Jerusalem, of which Jeremiah was left there, the prophet Jeremiah. He's got him over in Babylon, and Daniel begins to see visions from God. He becomes God's prophet in the midst of the people of Israel. So God has moved his people because of their disobedience out of the land of promise into the land of Babylon. And he's got his young men leading over them, good young men, Daniel being one of them. God gives Daniel a vision. He sees four kingdoms. He sees the kingdom of Babylon, of which Daniel is part of at that time. He sees the next kingdom that comes, and it's this strange looking, he sees the statue in chapter 2, and then in chapter 7, it's the same type thing. It's the great wind stirring up the sea there in Daniel chapter 7, the sea of peoples. He sees the first one, it's like a lion, and that's Babylon. He sees the next one, it's like a bear, and this is the Medo-Persian kingdom. The Persians actually took over and defeated the Babylonians under Cyrus the Great. The Persians ruled for 100 or so years, 150 so years, and then Alexander the Great from the Greek kingdom, the third kingdom that Daniel saw, comes and takes over. And then Daniel saw a fourth kingdom. It's the kingdom of Rome. And by the time he sees this Roman kingdom, it's got this, this teeth in it. It's a beast. It's Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. I kept looking in the night vision to behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. And note there at the end of chapter 7, it had ten horns. And what he sees is this kingdom of Rome, that by the time we get to the New Testament, that's the reigning empire. This Roman Empire, except the ten horns, uh, which elsewhere are ten, uh, ten horns, I should say, ten toes in the statue he saw in chapter 2. You see chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 7 are parallel, same, different visions, same interpretation. So this kingdom, this powerful kingdom of Rome is not finished in the first century. It's got this ten-nation confederacy attached to it at the end, which will appear, we see in the end times. We even see it in the book of Revelation. Daniel sees this kingdom. He's not living in it. It disturbs him. And he says in Daniel 9, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I kept looking. It's at the end of, by the way, he sees this fourth beast, and then he sees another little beast come up out of the ten horns, which is the Antichrist, by the way. He has a mouth telling great boasts at the end of verse 8. But in verse 9, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Now, mind you, in the context and in the chronology, he's seen one kingdom, two, three, four kingdoms, and he's seen another part of that fourth kingdom with ten nations and, a, and an antichrist, we call him, popping up. And he keeps looking, and he says, I saw the ancient of days. He took his seat. That's God the Father. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair, his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels we're a burning fire. In other words, at the end of this, at the end of this, these empires, when they finally run their course, it's like history stops. And there's God the Father in his burning glory and zeal. And Daniel sees it way ahead of time. He says in verse 10, a river of fire was flowing from, was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. It's time for judgment. Daniel says, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That's the Antichrist that comes out of that empire in verse 8. 
He hears boastful words from this horn, this power. He says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning of fire. That's Jesus returning. We know that from history. We know that from the rest of prophecy in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, that's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. As for those beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Are you still with me? Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So what you see is you see these kingdoms, God giving this prophet Daniel, beginning in 605 B.C., the Babylonians will rule. Beginning in 539 B.C., the Persians will rule. Beginning in, in 400, around 330 B.C., the Greeks will rule. And beginning in 63 B.C., the Romans will rule. And they will fizzle out. And at some point, there will be a remnant of their kingdom that comes back led by this man we call the beast, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, he's called throughout the New Testament. And once that plays its course, the Son of Man, this mysterious Son of Man will appear and a kingdom is given to him and it's an everlasting kingdom. Well, in Jesus' day, Himself, calling himself in Matthew's gospel 31 times, the son of man, Mark 14 times, Luke 25 times, and in John 13 times, Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. That guy that Daniel prophesied back in 600 BC, 600 years prior, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the king I am the son of man prophesied, and I come at the end of those kingdoms, and I will set my kingdom up. Are you with me? Jesus is the king, and there is no kingdom without a what? In fact, the king is the kingdom. When the king is, the kingdom is. So when Jesus answers his disciples and tells them, he says, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man. And back in Luke 17, 22, you will not see it. You see, Jesus spoke of his kingdom when he was on the earth as present. That the kingdom of God is present. It's here. And here and now. Now for those of you going haywire already, we got to leave this church. He also speaks of it as being future. He also speaks of it as an ongoing thing like a seed growing from a small seed into a large tree. And it's important that we understand all three of these renditions of his kingdom so that you can interpret the rest of the Bible and the rest of this passage for that matter. A couple passages I give you on how the kingdom of God is right now. The kingdom of God. We see in Luke chapter 4, we saw I should say in Luke chapter 4 verses 17, verses 14 to 17, Jesus comes uh, into, Jeru into uh, Nazareth, his hometown, he opens the Bible, he opens a scroll, would have been in those days, to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads this passage. This passage here says, I'm going to go to it real quick. I didn't plan to, but I'm going to. See how fast I can get there. I've already passed it. I've got to go back. Don't you like the commentary I'm giving you along the way? 
Isaiah 61. He says, this is Jesus speaking in the first century. He says, the spirit of the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stops, he closes it, and all eyes are on him. And he said, "Uh, by the way, guys, today this has been fulfilled. Wait, what? What do you mean? This has been fulfilled. What Isaiah said in 700 B.C., I'm the fulfillment. Do you think the people of Nazareth said, wow, Local boy done good. No, they tried to kill him. He left. He announces. He's saying, I am the king. So when the king is present, the kingdom of God is present. Hence, the kingdom of God, when Jesus was on this planet, was here because the kingdom is as the king is. The kingdom present. Jesus says in the the great Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the, the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness, for yours is The kingdom of God. In other words, that word is versus future, you know the difference between present and future, do you not? When Jesus says it is, that means the kingdom of God is. Blessed are the poor, and blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, the king is. At Jesus' transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, he took himself, he took, I should say, three disciples, Peter, James, and John with him. And he manifested the glory of God to those three men. The glory of God manifested. God, the king, right there, the kingdom is. As Jesus is, so is the kingdom. Jesus even says, he sends the disciples out in Luke chapter 10. And he tells them, you go out and tell the people, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. The kingdom of God is upon you. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. Luke says the kingdom of God. They're they're synonymous. It is upon you. It's here. Tell them that. In Luke chapter 20, verse, chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus is casting out another demon. The Pharisees are going, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the devil. And Jesus said, look, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is here. It is upon you. Did he cast out demons by the finger of God? Then the kingdom of God is here. So you've got that one. This is the kingdom, by the way, in its present realities. We call it the invisible kingdom. We, meaning theologians. I just picked it up. I, didn't, I wasn't part of that little meeting they had when they decided to start calling that. But uh, It's called the invisible kingdom. It's here, but it's not in its totality. It's a now, not yet. How do we know? Because Jesus speaks of it as future. Jesus speaks of it in chapter 11, verse 2, Luke chapter 11, verse 2, as a future uh, reality versus this present reality, chapter 11. Jesus says he was praying at a certain place, and he cried out, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Well, why in the model prayer would we need to pray, Lord, send your kingdom, let your kingdom come, if it's already here? Because it's not here in its totality. 
So we believe the kingdom of God is, but not in all of its future reality. Why? Because Jesus left. That's what he says, what I read in Luke chapter 17, verse 22. The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Jesus was here. The kingdom of God was here. He left, and he said, pray that the kingdom of God be sent to you. Pray that it come. Your kingdom come. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, he said, you will long, there's a day coming when you will long to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. So that's a yet future thing. So it's now, it's not yet, and Jesus also speaks of it as unfolding. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is very tiny, like a BB, starts off small, grows into a large tree. He said it's like leaven, a little bit of leaven and a huge batch of dough permeates the whole dough. The kingdom of God is here, it's not yet here, and it is unfolding and growing. You get the kingdom of God? Present? Future and growing, the kingdom of God. Send your kingdom. When Jesus says here in verse, seven, in verse chapter 17, verse 22, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man. He's saying, there's a time, guys, I'm here with you now, but you're going to look forward to see me one day. It's not all going to end here. You will not see it. Verse 23, they will say to you, look here, look here, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. So in other words, in the times, he's not only talking to the disciples there, he's talking to you and me, a future generation. And he's saying that because the kingdom of God is going to come upon you, if someone comes along, if you're, on the, if you're watching the news one night or one day someone comes along and says, hey, Jesus returned. If you didn't see it, it didn't come. If somebody has to tell you that Jesus has returned, he didn't. Just write that down. He didn't. You will not need to be told. Here, here's what I mean. Jesus says, verse 24, For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, unless you are hanging around Captain Obvious, who says, hey, look at there, there's lightning. What usually follows a, a bolt of lightning right near you? Thunder. Hey, that's lightning. Gee, really? Thunder. If you've ever been near lightning, and I mean really near it, you felt it. And even if you are deaf, you feel the thunder. You will shake. Boom. No one needs to tell us. That is what it will be like at the return of Jesus. No one will need to tell us. So Jesus is saying, you're going to long for those days, but don't worry, you're not going to need to be told. Anyone who says, look over there, look over here, don't go that way. Don't go after them. It will be obvious when he comes. Verse 25, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So you're going to long to see those days, guys. But before that happens, Jesus knows what he has to do. He has to suffer and be rejected. I want you to hold your place there in Luke and just go over to chapter 9, verse 22, just over to the left in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 22. Where Jesus had originally told the disciples, right before he made his final trek to Jerusalem, where he knew he would be killed, 9.22, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected, note there, by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, that's the religious leaders of the day, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus knows, calling himself once again the Son of Man. Daniel's prophecy didn't say that. Daniel's prophecy didn't say the Son of Man appears after the fourth kingdom, and he's the fifth kingdom, that eternal kingdom, and he's got to suffer and die. Daniel doesn't say that. Daniel doesn't see that. God doesn't give Daniel that. But Jesus is telling them that's what's going to happen. And if he's going to be suffer many things, not by his enemies per se, but by the religious leaders of Israel, after he does, he's going to be killed, raised up on the third day. Now look at the same chapter. Just look over at verse 44, where Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now let's go back to 17 and read it again. Jesus is saying, guys, you're going to long to see the days of the Son of Man like you have now, all the healings I've performed, the deaths, people I've raised them from the dead, the truth I have given, the wisdom that I have. I am God in the flesh. You're going to long for those days. But first, I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Do you know who this generation is after reading 922? It's that generation of religious leaders. It's the others among the crowd that day. Remember, he's going back and forth from the Pharisees to his disciples, telling one, telling them this. I'm telling my disciples this, but tell the Pharisees that. They're all listening to each other. But Jesus is saying, here's how it has to unfold. He's already talked about the Son of Man. So anyone who knows about the Son of Man is sitting there thinking, I don't remember that from Daniel's prophecy. But you see, the Old Testament gave us bits and pieces. That's what prophecy does. Bits and pieces here, there. You fit this in from Ezekiel over here and from Daniel here and, and Isaiah. And you put it over here in the New Testament. You got first from 1 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation and Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. And you fit it all together and you have this systematic theology of what's going to happen in the end of time. We have that benefit. The disciples didn't at that time. But Jesus is simply saying, here's some new revelation to you guys. Before all that's fulfilled, I've got to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Where, by the way, from 922, I'm going to be raised, ascend into heaven, return again. Verse 26. I imagine this teaching has left them all wide open mouth, and we don't know what to say. And Jesus said, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. I want you to note there, just a little side note, is that Jesus clearly sees Noah as a historical figure. You know, this person that has been mythologized in our modern day, Jesus is either just as, as deluded or he just happens to believe that Noah's real. I'm going with Jesus, by the way. Hope you do too. What was going on in the days of Noah? Well, if I go back to the days of Noah, I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 6, and here's what it reads. Chapter 6, verse 1, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, that would be the angels in heaven, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Angels in heaven, looking at human women, lusting after them, taking them as their brides, impregnating them. The Lord God said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. In other words, God is saying, you got 120 years, 120 years to turn from your wicked ways. Who's going to preach? We learned that the Nephilim are on the earth in those days. Those are the giants, by the way. The wicked offspring, most likely of the angels in heaven, impregnating the daughters of men. 
They were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, note that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The depravity of man there. The Lord God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, one man. It doesn't say that his wife found favor, but Noah needed a wife because God was going to preserve Noah on that ark. He needed a wife to perpetuate, to start again, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. And so we go back to Luke chapter 17 when Jesus says, as it happened in the days of Noah, the days of Noah, that was confusing at best, wasn't it? Nephilim, the Hebrew word for mighty men of old is Gibberim, Nephilim, and the Gibbelim, Gibberim, and the days of Noah, and angels impregnating women, really? Isn't that just fanciful garbage? No, that's actually where demons come from, folks. Demons come from that union. In fact, those particular angels that impregnated human women have been kept in the darkest chains and unable to get out and do what they once did. We read about them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God has kept them in chains of darkness. I think it's the very same place that 1 Peter chapter 3 says that Jesus went in his spirit and proclaimed his victory. Hey, guys, you know, since you're hanging in the dark for the rest of your life, I got a secret for you. I won. Isn't that great? Even our Lord likes to stick it to him. The victory. I don't know. He's probably not. And maybe he is. I don't know. So he's talking. This is the context. As it was in the days of Noah, when people were so wicked, so had gone so far from their depraved state of mind, their, their twistedness, their perversions, killing each other, what's going on in heaven has made its way to earth in a wicked way. God destroys it all. But in 120 years of preaching, Noah had 120 years. We learn from 2 Peter chapter 2 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher. Noah went around preaching to that godless generation, telling them to repent. And you know what? No one listened. Because when he got on the boat, it was just him and his wife and his three sons and three wives. And their wives. Eight people. In the days of Noah, when it started raining, no doubt people were laughing at Noah as the waters sprung up from the subterranean depths of the earth. That ark was looking pretty smart. It looked pretty dumb when he was building it. But there was a day when the door was shut. And that's what Jesus is saying. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Days again, the days of the Son of Man. What is he talking about? The days of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ, when the Son of Man does return. You're longing for it when he does return. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Well, do you think that we live in a depraved day? And we live in South Texas. It's not nearly as bad here as it is just further north you go, right? I mean, that's not a joke. That's actually somewhat safe here in Texas. Not for long, there's no doubt. Nothing in the Bible that says Texas is saved unless Texas is actually heaven, and I might be. It might be. Amen, brother. If you are from another 
state and you got here, thank the Lord. It's a local call to heaven from Texas. Look at what they were doing. In the days of, of Noah, it will be like that in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 27, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, none of which are sins. But they show a, a society that's doing what they do. They were doing what they do with no regard for what God was going to do. We might put in today, they were, if it was written today, they were on their phones, playing with their apps, taking pictures of themselves, loading it onto social media, looking at themselves, themselves again, and looking at themselves more on their TikTok videos. Everyone is entrenched and enmeshed in their own lives. Don't you think it would say that today? Bunch of narcissistic people taking pictures and then looking. Take another picture, then look. Man, I look, I look better over there, over here. Look at that light. How about this pose? That's our generation. They walk around just outside on the phone staring at themselves, watching worthless videos. This is the way it will be. I mean, forget the coming of the Son of Man. Any of us, if we were wicked, could walk upon any large, muscular man and pummel him. Because everywhere they go, they're like this. Just like a zombie attached to this device. No attention to outside forces. What's going on around me? Who's behind me? Who's following me? What's going? Don't want to be paranoid. But it's, it's, a, it's a look that Jesus is giving in those days that would be parallel to our days where people are just uninterested. Their focus is on something else. They're marrying. They're being given in marriage. They're eating. They're drinking. That's the way it's going to be. In the days of the Son of Man, that's what they were doing until the ark came up, being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. We see people today, they have no regard for eternal matters. It's all about themselves, just their happiness. Evaluate your prayer life. What are you praying for? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, give to me. I need this. I need that. Where's the Lord when I need him? What would happen if God answered all your prayers in one day? One day, all your prayers were answered. How would the world benefit? Or would it just be you? Would you get everything in your Amazon wish list that day? Would your health be restored and you jump around? Would the world be any better? Are you praying for our government leaders? Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for... Uh, courage in evangelism are you praying for wisdom how might the world be benefited if you were praying and god gave you everything you asked for well the way it was in the days of, of noah was that things happened really quickly no one listened to the preacher of righteousness and death came upon them verse 28 same thing happened in the days of lot now lot was abraham's nephew abraham had a nephew Named Lot, L-O-T. He took Lot with him when he left Ur of the Chaldees, modern Kuwait around there. He left there. He goes up following in the, the Euphrates River, and he comes down into the land of God's promise, the land of Canaan, the modern-day country of Israel. Because that land was given to Abraham and to his offspring Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac. That land belongs to Israel. If you need to fill in blanks on what's going on in the Middle East, there is a fight for the land. There always has been. It belongs to the Israelites. No one else. There is no mistaking what the Bible says. It belongs to Israel. Will they win? Yeah. 
They've been winning. And they've been winning without God. They are not our friends with regard to the gospel. They are our enemies with regard to the gospel. That may sound anti-Semitic, but that's just the way it is. They are our enemies. And I am quoting, by the way, the Apostle Paul from Romans 11. They are our enemies as relates to the gospel. But as relates to the gospel of election and predestination, they are our brothers. And I'm still stuck on Genesis 12 where Jesus told Abraham, those who curse you I will curse, and those who bless you I will bless. That may be the only saving grace in the United States of America is our being allied with Israel. We're getting away with abortion, murdering little babies all over the place. We got away with with killing and enslaving the black man for years and years. We get away with all the filthy sins that we get away with. Perhaps the only saving grace is our relationship with Israel. Well, Lot was with Abraham. And Lot's people started arguing with Abraham's people. And Abraham said, Lot... Let's just keep ourselves, let's keep this friendship, our relationship as, as uh, you being my nephew. Let's keep this intact. You take your people wherever you want to go. Take your pick. Lot chose the beautiful land of Sodom. Now, that's not sarcastic. It was beautiful. It was lush. If you want to know where the, the old land of Sodom and Gomorrah was, it's at the base end, the southern end of the, of the Dead Sea. In fact, if you go to the Dead Sea today, you swim right on top of ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. It's really strange. And so Lot goes there, and the place was corrupt already. And then you get to Genesis 18, and God visits. He hears an outcry from these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He hears it from heaven. And he comes down to earth. He becomes a man. You read about it, Genesis 18. It's the Lord, the Lord in all capitals, which means it's Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word behind Lord in all caps. He comes to the earth. He's got two men with him. It looks like three men, though. Abraham sees him. Abraham talks to him. The Lord stands there and talks to Abraham. You know the story where where Abraham goes back and forth with the Lord. He says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, if you find 10 people there, will you not? Okay, if I find 10 people, I won't destroy them. He's talking to God in flesh. The other two men have made their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah, to the basic city of Sodom. They go down and they find Lot. Lot. They go to stay in the, in the town square. Lot finds them and says, hey, y'all come over here. He doesn't know they're angels. He brings them into his house. The town of Sodom is so wicked that the two men that have come into town, staying at Lot's house, are accosted by the town's men. The men of the town come and bang on the door. They want Lot to release those two men, just two visitors to them. Let them come out so we can rape them. Now, that's a depraved society, is it not? Ezekiel's prophecy speaks of them being arrogant, having way too much without any other need, unhospitable. They were the worst of the worst. Well, the angel said, Lot, look, you got to come with us. God is going to destroy this city. You need to come with us. His wife didn't want to go. His daughters didn't want to go. They were engaged to two men of the town. Two men of the town thought Lot was joking when they said, you need to come with us. And he said, you need to come with us. And They didn't. So Lot will escape the city with his wife and two daughters. They run. God tells him to run. The the angel said, get out of town. We cannot destroy this city until you leave. Same way God is saying, I won't destroy the earth until Noah is in that boat. Again, verse 28. It was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. None of which is sinful. 
in and of itself. It just shows a society completely unaware, uncaring, indifferent, apathetic to Lot, who was a righteous man. We also learn from Second Peter. Living in their midst. We don't really care what you have to say. It's the modern world saying, we don't care what a preacher of the good word says. We're going to live our lives as we want to live it. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be an interim. You're going to long for those days of the Son of Man, but I'm not going to be here. And when I return, it's going to be just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Lot. Right before God spewed down fire and brimstone from heaven to completely destroy Sodom and the surrounding cities. Right before he did it, people were on their phones. TikTok video, Amazon, whatever. Marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking. Let's get together for a party. Yeah, the preacher's over there. We don't care. We're not listening. I spoke at a golf tournament recently and uh, shared the gospel there. And uh, I told you this, but and uh, I just tried to share the gospel as best clearly as I could right before we went and played golf, brief to the point. And uh, Brian Smith was standing next to a guy, and he said, um, I don't know if Brian said he knew me, but he said, do you, have to, do you have to listen to that guy regularly? Brian said, I get to listen to him every week. But that was the attitude. And all he did was just say, you're sinners. What's the big deal? Doesn't everyone know they're sinners? That, that Christ said that, that the wages of sin is death, so you're a sinner and you die. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. Believing in him, trusting in him alone. You have to hear that every week. Simple. We weren't in a church We're standing outside. We're about to play a beautiful golf course. But that was so offensive that someone had to look over and say, you have to listen to that every week. This is the attitude of the day. People don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear what God's word says. And so they go about their way, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, making videos, taking pictures, looking at themselves, completely entrenched in their lives. Verse 29, but on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Let me read to you what the Old Testament says about that day at Christ's return. You don't want to be there, by the way. Isaiah 13, 9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate sinners from the land. Joel, that brief book of Joel is filled with this day of the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty, Joel 1.15. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, Joel 2.1. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, Joel 2.31. How many of you yesterday forgot about the, the, the eclipse and came into your house and went, what is wrong? I thought I was having a stroke. I really did. I wondered if I was having a stroke because it was bright and I came into the house. And I, I didn't want it. kind of scared me. What? And I just had the conversation with someone about an hour earlier that there was, oh, it's an eclipse. So I got to look at it and that was a dumb move. And, <laughs> blinders all over my eyes all day that's kind of what it's going to be like where the sun is darkened it's going to be weird Cheryl and I got to talking and I said what if we knew that Jesus was going to come back in an hour what if we knew if Jesus was hey I'll be there in an hour I mean I I got little butterflies in the stomach really wouldn't that be awesome I mean he could he hadn't told us that but what if right now think about this moment of pause 
What if he was coming in the next hour? Does that scare you to death? Or does your stomach do flip-flops? The day of the Lord for God's people is not going to be what I'm reading from the Bible here. But for those who are wicked, for those who are eating, drinking when the judgment is coming, Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 16 says this. You're saying, what? Zephaniah, that's in the Bible. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds of thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Folks, the day of the Lord is ugly. And Jesus is saying, believe in me and be saved from the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns, it's not a pretty day. It unfolds. I'll finish that thought as this unfolds. Verse 31, on that day, that is the day when the Son of Man is revealed, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. It'd be like saying, your house is on fire. Don't go back in there to save any, anything. Remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Well, Lot... And his wife escaped the fury of God from Sodom and Gomorrah. But on their way out, while she is in the process of being saved, while she's in the process of being delivered, she looked back. She didn't look back to say, wow, that's amazing. The look back here is not to see destruction. The look back is a longing for what I just left. It's people that come to know Christ, quote unquote, who look back and say, man, I miss those days of getting drunk. Living in revelry. Man, I miss those days, you know. I'm glad I'm going to heaven and all, but those were some fun days, weren't they? You see, people reminisce about that. Where you see, they get this big grin on their face, and they reminisce about the old days. Folks, if those old days for you were like that, you shouldn't even talk about them. And if you do, it should be a tear in your eye with great shame. I'm not proud of what I did, who I was. She looked back, longing for a people, longing for a place, and she became, according to Genesis 19, a pillar of salt, just like the rest of that which was destroyed that day. And so Jesus is saying, on that day, if you're on the housetop, when I return, don't go back to get your possessions. That will only say that you love the world more than me. You want your possessions. Oh, let me go get this with me. Let me go take that with me. This is given more in detail when we get to chapter 21. But he's just saying essentially, remember remember Lot's wife, don't fall in love or be in love with this world. Some people, they're trying to make this world their heaven. A nest egg, perfect house or two, perfect cars, got to have their house all in just perfect shape. Everything's got to be right. This is my heaven. And the more that looks beautiful, the less likely you're going to be to want to leave it. I always think of blind Bartimaeus. When Jesus walked in from Jericho, he goes into, he's on his way to Jerusalem. We'll get to it in Luke 19, I believe. And as he's walking in, uh, he's blind. He wants to see. And Jesus said, come here. And the only thing he had was a mat. And I'm guessing it wasn't real clean. And it just says he left his mat and went to Jesus. That's all he had to leave. What's to leave? We become so wealthy and we have so many things. We have storage bins. We have storage places to put our stuff. 
as we get older. By the way, as you get older, you're supposed to sell that stuff off. Help your kids out. They're the ones that are going to have to go into those places, find, find a key, sell all this stuff, and go through and go, why did mom and dad keep this stuff? Do your kids a favor, sell it off. You don't need it. Be less and less tied to this world because when you go, none of it's going with you. And if you know you're going to go and you're going, but I don't want to leave my car. I don't want to leave my stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember Lot's wife, I'm coming in an hour. You don't know. Are you ready? Are you ready right now, today? So he says, here's what it'll look like. Verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Hey, I I hope that I am that person. Lord, take it. Take it now. Let's go home. That's my longing. I want to stay here. And I've got a great life. Verse 34, I will tell you that on that night, note that night. Looks like Jesus is coming back at night here. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Verse 35, then there will be two women grinding in the same place. Well, grinding happens in the day. So if Jesus returns one place on earth, it's going to be night one place. It's going to be day in another place. It's never uniform night or day, right? So that's what he's saying. This is not the rapture of the church. It looks like it, though, doesn't it? Looks like this is going to be raptured. But really what's happening here is there's two in one place. One's taken, the other's left. Here the taking is the taking of the wicked for judgment. The one that's left behind is the one that's left there to stay and populate Jesus' millennial kingdom. The rest of us will have been raptured seven years prior, or if you're a mid-tribulationist, three and a half years prior. But that tribulation occurs before the second coming. You're, we are transcended into heaven. Those of us who are still alive, we meet Christ in the air, and everyone who's died in Christ prior has already been there. They are resurrected, and they're there. And we're all together with Christ. It's a beautiful, glorious day. There is no judgment in the rapture. Only judgment for the earth that there are now no Christians left on it. The preservative is gone. What happens when preservatives go? Things begin to stink, don't they? And so when the preservative is gone, the world gets even worse. And we call, it's called in the Bible, I say, the tribulation. Seven years long. At the end of that seven years, Jesus returns. And when he does, the people that miss the rapture, there are some that in that seven-year process come to know Christ as their Savior in the tribulation. Maybe they come to church on the day after the rapture and say, well, it looks like my preacher was right. It looks like I missed it. There's two or three people mingling around the church. Who's going to preach today? I don't know. The preacher's gone. I hope I'm gone. Pretty sure I'm going to be gone. It'd be very strange and embarrassing if I wasn't. But you'd know I would nothing but a hypocrite prior to that if I'm still here. But they're going to be people that know what, what happened. And they will come to know Christ during that tribulation time period. And by the time Jesus comes back, there will be believers. Hence, one is left. One is taken away. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 25, beginning of verse 31, as we call it the sheep and goat judgments. The sheep and goat judgment, when Jesus comes back, he's going to take what's left of the people that are alive. Some are called sheep, they're believers. Some are goats, which begs the question to people who are believing the post-tribulation rapture as to how do you get a sheep and goat's judgment if God raptures his church at the end? He's taking the sheep off. There's no place for a judgment. Don't be a post-tribulation rapture person. That's not biblical and it has no purpose in the Bible. 
Why would Jesus, at the end of the tribulation, rapture his church, only bring him right back to judge sheep and goats? It makes no sense. No, Jesus will separate all the people, sheep from the goats. The angels will come down with Jesus along with the raptured church and judge those unbelievers. We see the same thing in the, in the wheat and the tares, that parable in Matthew 13 of what happens to, the, to those that are left when Jesus returns. But even in those days, even in the tribulation where things are so horrible at the end, people are eating, drinking, getting married, and paying no attention to the preaching of the gospel that is being had, being done by those who do believe. Two men here, two women there. Verse 36, it's probably in brackets in your Bible unless you have um, a King James Version. Um, this is an added text. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's actually taken from Matthew chapter 24. It's not a wrong one, but it doesn't add anything to the text. Two men are in the field. One will be taken, the other left. It's already, he's already said that above it. Um, and so the disciples answer in verse 37, where, Lord? I notice they don't say when. When, but where? Where, Lord? Where? It seems like an odd question, and it makes it very difficult to interpret. Why would they ask Where? Where will they be? Where are those people going to be, Lord? What about those that you took? Where? I think that's what he's saying. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. Elsewhere in the Bible, where is this going to happen? Jesus has already said, I'm not telling you when. I don't even know. He said, only God the Father knows. God the Son, he's saying, I have given away my ability to know when this will happen. I don't know when, so I can't tell you. But where will it happen? And he gives them what looks like an old proverb. Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Well, you know where there's death when you see vultures circling, right? You see them out there, they're on the ground or in the sky, or, or they're down. You know, you can smell, you can see the vultures. Folks, this is, a, this is not just a proverb. I want you to turn over, if you can, to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. Book of Revelation, chapter 19, uh, which is the second coming of Christ. Interestingly enough, that's why I'm going there. When Jesus returns, there's this great glory. He returns with his church, the raptured church. The angels are with him. It's the glorious day. It's seven years after the, the tribulation began. God has summed up almost everything he prophesied that would happen has now happened. He returns in this great glory. There's a marriage feast between, with Jesus and his church and the invited guests. In Revelation 19, 17, that's the context John says this, John the Apostle says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. In other words, the death of God's enemies the disciples are asking, where? Well, just follow the birds of carrion, men. Where will it be? It's going to be at this one great gathering place that while the church of Jesus Christ is enjoying this, the marriage feast, over here, the birds of carrion will be eating the flesh of God's enemies. That's the vivid picture of judgment. They were there. The, all the signs of Jesus' coming we're in the sky. Everything that's been prophesied, point after point after point after point, no one's listening. So all the signs are there, but they're not listening. They had every chance to repent. Now, stay with me. 
Jesus said earlier in this text back in, in Luke, 27, Luke 17. Maybe you caught this. Maybe you didn't. In verse 22, 17, 22, Jesus said, the days come. You will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. They will say, look there, look here. Don't go, don't run after them. For just like lightning flashes in one part of the sky, shines in the other part of the sky, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. But first he must suffer many things, be rejected. He speaks of the days of Noah. But he's, he's saying back in verse 20, I didn't even do it, didn't go through it, but having questioned him by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be detected. So at the end of Jesus' coming, there is sign after sign after sign. And when we go through the uh, Chapter 21, as we went through the book of Revelation in a year, we saw there's all kinds of signs. What does Jesus mean? You see, in the context, remember I told you, remember that Jesus' kingdom is now, not yet, and unfolding? The now part of Jesus' kingdom had no signs. Hence, Jesus says, nor will they say, look, um, verse 20, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. There were no signs leading up to Jesus' first coming, that part of the kingdom. But the fulfilled part of the kingdom, there is sign after sign after sign after sign. That's what the book of Revelation is given to us for. And even the people then who are rejecting Christ are not watching the signs. So where does that leave us at 1128? I don't know who's going up there and speeding that clock up while I preach. I know to you it seems a long time, but there's a lot to get through. Here's the events. First of all, you're a sinner. And the only way to be forgiven of your sins is to receive Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sins. He is going to return because he's God and he doesn't lie. He said he's going to return. When he returns, he will return first in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. It's called the rapture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and 51, 52, the rapture of the church. Paul calls it a mystery, which means that Jesus never talked about it. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed in a moment. Twinkling of an eye. That means he's telling us a mystery because Jesus didn't say anything about the rapture. That means Jesus is talking about the second coming. The rapture of the church, friends could happen at any moment, and there's not a single sign that precedes it. It could happen right now. Now. False prophet right here. I wish it would happen right then. It could happen at any moment. When it does, that sparks a series of events that Revelation 6 through 19 speak in some detail. That Matthew 24, that Luke 21 speaks of. Over the course of those events, people will come to know Christ, and Jesus will return at the end. And he will judge all those who don't. So who are you ought to be? Who ought we to be today? Do you want to live through that tribulation? If you are following the news of what is happening in Israel, do you want to be a man with your hands tied behind your back and watch your wife and children be taken from you and brutalized? Do you want to be that man? I'd, I would die of anger if I saw that transpire in front of my eyes. If I could not get loose, I would die of anger. I would absolutely explode. No one gets away with that, the people I love. There's no way. And if I can't do anything about it, do you want to watch that happen? Ladies, kids, do you want that to happen? That's happening on earth, and that's not even the tribulation. 
That's just a taste of what is waiting. If you miss the rapture, if you miss believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, you should be scared out of your minds if you have not received Christ. You should be trembling in your boots. God's wrath is waiting. What happened in the flood happened. What happened in Lot's day at Sodom and Gomorrah happened by God's decree and judgment over sin. He saved those out of it, like Noah and Lot. And he will save us out of the tribulation through the rapture. But at the end, that day of the Lord is ugly. And so I appeal to you. Believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. If he should come before you get baptized, you're going with him. You're still going. If you didn't get a chance to tithe your 10%, you're still going because it's faith that saves. Not 10%, not whether you were baptized as an infant, as an adult, poured, sprinkled, whatever. Those things are important. If you have the time and the, and the means to do it, do that. Doesn't cost anything either to get baptized. But we are saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming. You will long for those days, Jesus said, and they're coming. Let's pray. Lord, may we be watchful. May we be serious. May we enjoy food, drink, marrying, and giving in marriage. Always with a watchful eye to the heavens. Always with an attitude toward glory to God. May we enjoy the joys and the delights of this world. Yes, the ones that you have given, your gifts to us. But may our countenance be upon you. May we be looking. May we long to be with you. And may we spread the word, the good word, in what time we have left to those we know are perishing. Oh God, encourage us. The end may be upon us. We're watching things happen and unfold before our eyes that are straight out of your word. It's gut-wrenching, and yet it's amazingly beautiful to see you are working. May we be ready. May we be watchful. If there be one that today has not given their lives to Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, that's your job. We ask that you would grant that be granted through the preaching of your holy word which reveals you in all of your glory and your holiness. May we rely upon that from your word and may we live to glorify and please you. This we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Go my friends. Be watchful and ready. He's coming soon. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 